Just a quick message before the episode gets underway. The Aurora Renewables Summit London is returning on the afternoon of Wednesday the 26th of June. Book your ticket now to hear from leading experts in the energy industry as they assess the opportunities and challenges within the UK and the wider European renewable sector. You will also benefit from unparalleled networking opportunities. We look forward to seeing you there. Poland and increasingly now in the rest of the European Union countries where we operate, the tone has changed massively in five years. I mean, it is night and day, to be frank. And what's driving that is a you know, it's a combination of things. It's renewables getting really, really cheap. Second thing is that carbon has got expensive in the EU. Third is that you know you've got a body of EU legislation which embeds really challenging targets. And then you've got popular sentiment, you know, more and more people concerned about the environment, pushing that agenda. Um, And then you've got business. And we see this outside the EU, you know, company after company saying, I'm not waiting for government. I want to go green. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm John Fedderson, co-founder and chief executive of Aurora. And my guest on the show today leads the lending and investment team at one of Europe's most influential renewables financiers. He focuses exclusively, I believe, on deploying capital investments in the places where investment is hard, like Eastern Europe, Northern Africa, rather than where it's easy. He cut his teeth in the investment space as a lawyer at one of the world's best known firms, And he's unusually uh, a classicist by training with a first-class honours degree in classics from the University of Oxford. Uh, My guest on the show today is Harry Boyd Carpenter, Director, Head of Energy, uh, EMEA, Europe, Europe, Middle East and Africa at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Welcome on the show, Harry. Hi, John. Thanks very much. And we've done something special today, uh, and we're also having an Aurora expert to join us. So uh, some will be surprised to hear Aurora actually has a bit of multilateral banking experience in-house. Most of it is actually on this call uh, and embodied in uh, our internal Aurora guest, Peter Baum. Uh, Welcome, Peter. Hi, John. Uh, And as I say... uh, Peter is Aurora's resident multilateral banker. He's formerly of the EBRD. He's now a project leader in Aurora's Berlin office, focusing on our activities in Eastern and Southeastern Europe. Uh, But he'll shortly be heading to Papua New Guinea to head up the Asian Development Bank's lending in that country. Uh, So uh, exciting times ahead for, for Peter in the multilateral banking space. Right. So, Harry, can I start by touching on the the route you took to get to the role that you're in now? Um, So one thing that strikes me about your background is, so you're a magic circle lawyer. It seems to me, you know, if you're a magic circle lawyer and you don't stay a magic circle lawyer and you move into the finance sector or something else, most people tend to move into the private sector. What was it that drew you into multilateral development investing, that, that type of area? It was really um, two things. 
you know, one is um, just the, the the sense of, you know, what are you trying to get out of a job? And, and, you know, I'm not somebody who thinks that you can only change the world by going into multilateral. Quite the contrary. I mean, EBRD is a bank that believes in the power of a private sector to deliver good things for people. But in my particular case, you know, I, I was just interested in the breadth of challenges and the, and the type of challenges that a public institution has to engage with. And, you know, part of my career, while I've been working in Nairobi, I left for a year and went to work in Kosovo um, shortly after the war there in the late 90s. Um, and, and that had really exposed me to that sort of work. And, and I think, you know, what was really what really came out of it was just those two. It was two things it was one is how fascinating I found those countries. You know, there's just something really, really, really interesting about emerging markets. Uh, I mean, Peter's about to find this out in space, but, um, you know, there's there's just a, a, a dynamism and an opportunity, you know, an excitement about that those sort of countries. And then also just the breadth of challenges you get to engage with at a public institution. You know, you have to think about political challenges, economic challenges, technical, engineering, commercial. So it was those two things, the, the excitement of the countries and, and the breadth of the challenge to engage with. Interesting. And I'd like to pick up on the, t- like, to- the topic of in what circumstances can the private sector thrive and contribute to social welfare? And in what circumstances is that, you know, problematic, like flogging a dead horse where you, you don't have the enablers there. We'll pick that up later, hopefully. The other thing about your background I wanted to pick up. So classics, I said, it seems like an unusual journey, although in this, in this country, uh, the UK where we're recording, it seems like there are classicists everywhere uh, in, uh, in the city of London. Um, how did that prepare you? And by classics, I mean, you know, classical languages, classical civilizations yeah. and their history. Um, how did that prepare you for the career you took? Or maybe it didn't. <laughs> yeah, well, we've got a classicist in number 10, don't forget, as well. <laughs> yeah. um, but I can detect the sort of, you know, the Australian quant thinking, what is this nonsense? Um, but but no, I mean, you know, it, it, the, the, the proposition is, um, I mean, I didn't go to, I didn't study classics because I wanted to to teach classics or whatever. I'm, I'm married to somebody who teaches classics and I can see, you know, she's a hell of a lot better than, than I am. But I, you know, the proposition, you know, for people who like me who, who chose that route was that it's a fantastic training, that it gives you an intellectual toolkit that allows you then to engage with a whole range of, of challenges. And, you know, I, it's not for me to judge probably, but but I actually think in my experience that really has been borne out. You know, you, it's a rigorous course. Um, it's You have to engage with language, you have to engage with, with, a, with two very structured languages, you know, that follow a whole load of rules. I mean, it's, you know, doing Latin and Greek translation is a bit like code breaking. So it gives you, I think, that rigor and that discipline and that understanding of how language works. But then you have to do history, you have to do philosophy, and, and that gives you a you know, an ability, I hope, to assimilate a lot of information, synthesize it, and then put something down on paper that, that's reasonably credible. And the other thing, of course, is it gives you the long view, you know, when you're when you're dealing with things, it helps to be able to sort of remember that, you know, Aristotle didn't give a damn about any of your problems. And, um, you know, it gives, gives you a bit of a sense of perspective. Do you find yourself drawing parallels? You think, you know, the arc of civilizations to topics like climate change, um, you know, nuclear proliferation and and these. Do you do you see parallels between the world today and 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 the classical world, or, or was it more about the the practical skills of actually, you know, you know, studying doing classics rather than the actual knowledge? It's more, and the, it's more the skill set. I mean, I think there's an interest. There's always an there's always an interest. I mean, it's sometimes it's quite refreshing when you're sort of stressed and and sort of worrying about the immediacy of the challenges. You know, it's quite refreshing to sort of sit back and and think about some of the things. You know. You know, the Iliad is the Iliad and will still be an amazing work of art in, a, in another 2000 years. And that, that helps you sort of calm down a bit sometimes. But but no, I mean, the, the, the practical things I learned, 
you know, it's interesting, actually, there is an area of growing area of study in, within classics looking at, you know, the classical world's engagement with climate and engagement with landscape. But the truth is, you know, climate change was not a problem then and, and there wasn't the scientific, um, there wasn't the scientific sort of way of thinking to, to, to engage with it in the same way. So, no, it's, it's the skill set that's, that's really useful. At least I hope it's useful. Got it. Interesting. An interesting take. Um, just looking to the future of your career, actually. So you, I don't know, you have a new title or you will have a new title very soon. You will. Managing Director for Green Economy and Climate Action. Now, I imagine that's the first time that title has existed in the EBRD. Um, how does it change your focus? Well, so it's, it's, it's the first time that title exists, but it's the renaming of an existing title. So we, we had a, a, a managing director for energy efficiency and climate change who, you know, is a, is a, a guy called Joshua Tanaka who, who retired at the end of last year, but he's a, a, a towering figure. I mean, not just in the EBRD, but just generally in the climate world. I mean, he's really the person who, who defined, you know, I think what EBRD and by extension other multilateral development banks should be doing in this space. So, you know, the, the role exists already and it's a, you know, it's a pretty hard act to follow, to put it mildly, but the, you know, the, the job is essentially to, to look across, it, it's a step back from direct engagement in transactions and policy dialogue uh, or certainly transactions. Um, so it's not a, you know, directly deal doing role, but it's, it's to, it's to, be part of a team that looks across the whole economy and all of EBRD's activities and tries to, to do a couple of things. One is to inform all of those activities with an understanding of where the climate debate is going, you know, what does you know, economy-wide decarbonisation look like? Um, and, and the other is to, to really make sure that we, you know, as a bank, we can tend to think, you know, bankers tend to think very narrowly, very focused, let's get my project done, let's move my client's deal forward, and to try to make sure that we, we think holistically about the problem. And I think, you know, that to me is becoming more and more obvious that in the past, you, we in my sector, in the energy sector, we used to think, okay, how do we get this first 20 megawatt wind farm to happen in a country mm. or whatever? Now you've really got to think about the whole picture and say, okay, how do we integrate electricity with transport? How do we how do we think about heating? Those sorts of things. So that's really that that role to try to to try to look holistically across the whole economy, across the whole bank, and make sure that the the, the whole picture fits together. Yeah. Sounds phenomenally relevant, uh, as you say. You know, it is. Uh, you know, it, the, it's. It is. I suppose the premise behind your answer is it's less obvious now where intervention from someone like the EBRD can have the biggest impact, and some more thought about that is 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 relevant. I suppose now that a lot of these low carbon technologies are quite mature. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, I think. You know, we, we'd like to think we can continue to find places to have impact, but you've got to keep evolving. You know, in, in the past, we would have been just you know, celebrating if we'd managed to do a 10 megawatt solar plant somewhere. Now, I mean, there are still a few countries where we'd, be, we'd regard that as groundbreaking, but not many left. Yeah, they do um, themselves now, really. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you, you've got to keep, you know, you, you, you know the, point of the point of a bank like EBRD, I mean, it depends a little bit which country you're in, but, you know, many countries, the point is not to do the simple standardised thing because then we're crowding out the private sector. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we're not bringing value added. So, you know, the, we've got to be constantly looking at the frontier. And, and the frontier is, you know, there, is, there are, well, there are quite a lot of frontiers. You know, one, I think, is going to be around greening the financial system. So embedding a sort of systemic approach to, to sustainability in, in finance so that, you know, you, you start to have a natural, natural bias in financial flows towards what's green and what's sustainable. Um, another is about new technologies. Um, and then another is just about new business models, you know, finding, mm -hmm. you know, so 
in some countries, you know, where we where we would in the past have said, let's do project finance debt for for a wind farm. That's the that's the thing to do. Now that's you know that's all taken care of. We have to think about equity, or we have to think about green bonds, or you know something that hasn't been done yet. So, so on that first of those three points, mm. so a slight potentially naive question around sort of greening of finance. How big a role do you think the EBRD has had, can have in sort of you know standardization of contractual terms or capital structure whatever it is in going up and going in and saying this is how you should do this or this is what an ESG linked bond looks like has, has that been part of the EBRD's legacy um yeah well, we're still not we're not yet talking about legacy yet but, um, no 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 like best day, I'm sure the best yeah, days are still ahead but, exactly but, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah onwards and upwards yeah no I mean there's, there's, actually I mean there's a question about you know when when is the EBRD's job done to, which I think you've got later on the program but no I mean uh, I, I think one of the things I say about EBRD and, and be interesting to know Peter's take on it having been there and but now now being a, an objective observer is you know we are really close to to projects, to clients, to governments. You know, we have very strong local presence. We're, we're a project-driven bank. And I think what makes us most, when we are at our best and most effective when we're responding to those local opportunities and local needs. So, you know, what we, what we did in Mongolia to open up renewables there is different to what we are doing in Greece, say, um, or in the Baltics. So there's no single overarching answer, but I do uh-huh. think you know if you look at if yeah if you look at trying to green the financial system, um, you know we're an we're an important participant in some of the working groups at the industry level trying to shape that, um, and then very often what we're you know what we're trying to do is we're trying to make sure the f- we're we're always really interested in doing the first project of a particular type, so the first green bond or the first sustainability linked bond, um, and that gives you the chance to set the standard. Yeah. And one of the questions we always ask ourselves, for example, with the first renewables project is, okay, is this structure not just enough to get this project done, but is this a structure you can scale? Yeah. Um, you know, you, you, you don't, there's no, there's nothing exciting about doing a, the first 50 megawatt project unless you know that you can repeat this to 500 megawatts or, yeah. you know, 2000 megawatts. Yeah. Yeah. Peter? This is a really interesting element of, of EBD's work that we've been working together in Poland, for example, mm. where... EBRD is, is the lead lender in, in many of, let's say, market-driven uh, renewable uh, or wind, wind farms. And then you have other uh, coal lenders coming in. And presumably in a couple of years' time, they do that by themselves. And that's mm. just an established model. Yeah. And, and I think that that dynamic, if you see that, that's really uh, interesting and, and fascinating about, I think, the work that EBRD is doing with the private sector directly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and Harry, on, on this new role, how does it, how does it evolve... Um, given, you know, your major shareholders, obviously UK, EU, but also the Biden administration, mm. how, how does the changing administration in the US impact your focus on sort of climate and the wider energy transition? Well, it, it, it accentuates it and it strengthens it. But, and the US is, you know, a very important shareholder. I mean, it's an important shareholder, firstly, in crude terms, it's our largest shareholder. But also, you know, the US is a global leader in so many ways. Um, but it is still just one shareholder amongst many. And I think, you know, it's also important, you know, EBRD is an independent financial institution. We're not part of a European Union architecture. But at the same time, European Union member states, together with the Commission and the EIB, make up a majority of our shareholders. So it's an enormously influential um, shareholder block. And, um, you know, it says in the, in the preamble to our establishing agreement that we're fundamentally European in character. Um, so American influence is really important. 
Um, but you know, it's not overwhelming. It's not. It's not determinative. I think what really helps is the alignment now of of major sh- of major shareholders, and that's not true. Not just true for us. It's true across oh. across the world. I mean, you know, if you if you now look and say, well, you have you know the EU and you know people close to the EU, the countries like Norway, countries like the UK, clearly committed to net zero by 2050. You have um, China committed to net zero by 2060. You have the US, you know, Biden administration committing to net zero by 2050. You you, you just get this sort of groundswell of um, of momentum, which which yep. didn't exist, you know, prior yep. to the, the the change in administration. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And, and do you do you get this? I mean, and again, without knowing how the, the the funding model, but it sort of, do you think more capital will be will be seeking to be deployed from your shareholders through the EBRD or? No, there's not a discussion about a capital increase yeah. for EBRD. I mean, that may come in, in if, if circumstances change. But, you know, I think we are, we are very well capitalized right now. I think we have the capital to do what we want. I mean, we're constantly looking at new tools. But I think, you know, in terms of us deploying more capital, it will be more about mobilization than just, you know, raising more money from our shareholders. And, and, and that's the right way to go. I mean, if, you know, to the, to the extent that we need more capital, what we really need to be doing is creating structures that, that crowd in the private sector, not raising yet more public money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting. The thing I find most striking about Biden's climate commitments is this net zero grid by 2035. Yeah. And you could argue that he's actually ahead of Europe now. Um, in, you know, in the space of a few months, the US, US energy policy is, is, is going to go to the forefront. Now, let's see what follows. But, um, but um, it's very interesting. No, I agree. That's, a, that's an extraordinary commitment. And, um, you know, if uh, interestingly, I mean, you mentioned I worked at Alan Overy. I mean, Alan Overy's just, you know, I got, a, I got a note saying they'd strengthen their renewables practice in the US. And I thought, absolutely. I mean, the business opportunity that's coming there, because when you start to look at the numbers, my only worry is, you know, how do I keep investors interested in some of my markets? And, and <laughs> when they see what, you know, imagine you guys might be upping sticks and say, we better move yeah. to the US. That's where all the business is going to be. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we are, we're now set up in Austin. It's a, it's a good time. But it's, I mean, the challenge, I mean, I, it almost feels too audacious to me. I suppose would be my one of my concerns. Mm. And then, and then, as you probably know, U.S. policy of tax credits is not actually yeah. it's, it's not great at crowding in private sector investment. Actually, it's yeah. pretty good at keeping a whole bunch of private sector investment out from from mm. from certain people. Anyway, that's a that's a topic for a different mm. podcast, I suspect. Can I ask you both a fairly? So I want to change change um, change topics and talk a little bit about just development banking, multilateral banking in, in general. And I suppose the, the most fundamental question for me is, you know, why do organisations like the EBRD, European Investment Bank, you know, Green Investment Bank, Australia's um, CEFC, why do they have a role to play in the energy transition? And I suppose history, certainly when, when the EBRD was established, I don't think anyone would have envisaged, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think anyone would have necessarily envisaged that sort of role for it. So why and you know in general at least my view is you've got to be very careful um in you know intervening in the private markets uh you, you know you're going to make sure you're fixing something right um yeah what 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 why do they exist and why do they have an important role to play maybe it's harry good, first yeah it's a, it's a good question and i mean in peter's previous role in ebrd part of his job was to be part of a team that that that, that asked exactly that question internally look hang on a minute do you really have a role here and there's always a tension because you know you see deals, you're excited by opportunities, excited by projects, and you you know you need mechanisms, you need structures within the bank that that ensure that you don't crowd people out and you do keep focused. So you know 
of course i mean i work there i think that i think there is an important role and i think that role comes from a number of number of things generally about multilaterals and then specifically about ebrd so generally in multilaterals i think you know we have a mandate to take a long view and to take political risks and it's quite hard to imagine an energy transition taking place if you don't have some investors with a long view and a mandate to take political risks um because you know it's a very long-lived sector fundamentally driven by politics so i think that there's value in having that i think there is value in having an entity that is that has a mandate to sit on that line between the public and the private um, you know, we're a bank that's fundamentally about the private sector. You know, 75% of our investment goes to the private sector. We have a private sector culture um, and ethos, and we have a clear mandate to, to stay focused there. At the same time, we're publicly owned and we have a credibility with the public sector that is, um, that, that is quite unusual because fundamentally they know that we're on their side. And that ability to, to sort of navigate that road, to bring the two together. And if I think about some of the most impactful, most, um, you know, most exciting projects we've done, it's, it's when we've been able to do that, to bring the public to the private sector together. Um, and then, you know, specifically about EBRD, I mean, EBRD has a mandate around transition to, to sustainable markets or free markets. Um, and if you, if you accept the proposition that, you know, climate change in particular is a market failure, a bank that has a mandate to, to fix markets and to promote markets is, is quite well is quite well placed to meet that challenge. That said, yeah, I mean, there's always a risk of mission creep. There's always a risk of, of crowding out. I think what helps with EBRD is, you know, partly some of the internal structures, uh, people, people, you know, with a job to, 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 to raise that challenge, but also that we operate on commercial principles. And, um, you know, our credit function looks like a commercial bank credit function. You go in there and you may say, you can say all you like to the credit officer that this project is going to save the world. And, uh, you know, it will make um, it will be populated by happy, smiling children and, you know, daffodils will grow amongst the wind turbines. They could not care less. They just say to you, is it going to pay? Is it going to pay back? Are we going to do that? And I think and also pricing, you know, they, they put the pressure on us to price of it, price the deals properly. Um, and I think that that constraint is probably the most important one, um, because it, it puts you in a situation where you if you, you, you know, you're acting commercially and therefore people will only come to you if there's no commercial alternative, no private commercial alternative. And Peter will probably tell you all the, <laughs> the real the real reasons will probably tell you you're right. And that's why he left and it should close. <laughs> we should be closed tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Only in Papua New Guinea is there. Is there a role? Yeah. <laughs> and Peter, it'd be good to hear your thoughts on that. And if I could just kind of sharpen up my question, feel free to answer, you know, the, the broader question of why they've got a role to play in the energy transition. I mean, a cynic might say, right, these institutions exist because government wants to be able to pick winners, uh, wants to avoid the political blowback that's associated with that. So it's a, it's a tighter hand than a carbon price or something else like that. Um, and it's kind of plausible deniability in terms of, you know, what, what, what they're doing. It's, a, it's a far enough removed that I'm not going to get hit for this. Um, and so that, the question, obviously, that's not, that's, you know, that would be the totally cynical view. But yeah, I suppose one question here is, is it possible to remove the politics from investment decisions? So I get it, there's a credit, and maybe the credit team is the answer to that question. Um, so yeah, what's the role? And is it actually, you know, all of these great things, long-term planning, fixing market failures that Harry touched on, is it possible to remove the politics from the, from the investment decision? I mean, the answer is probably not entirely, but interestingly, when we think about it, uh, infrastructure development going going decades back, if it's just a state-driven exercise, a state-driven uh, responsibility, 
that's one thing. I think we're now looking at, uh, or we're understanding that public capital cannot solve the issues and challenges that we have. If we're thinking of here, development banks or public uh, lenders can can play a role in the sense that you don't have a one definite answer, but you are helping different answers to grow and, and, and succeed. An example in, in, in the German context, I mean, where we have a very strong state-driven, government-driven energy transition with subsidies, et cetera, is the offshore business there, where in the beginning, the, the public lender KW took on more debt share uh, to kind of de-risk these, these projects. They still had to work by themselves. They still had to repay. But the government said, we take this technology risk in the beginning. And if you now look at it across Europe, I mean, offshore is uh, it's a business model that works very well. And in Germany, I mean, there's no public lender involved anymore or needed. Yeah, yeah. And do you, you know, you're going to PNG, you're going to, you're going to do, do lending there. Is that in your sort of, my, your conscience, right? Like how much good am I doing for the world? Is it an easier... Is it an easier kind of bar in PNG in terms of the role of a multilateral institution than it is in, say, Greece? Do, do you do you feel like the do you feel like the opportunity is bigger, or is it just different? You know, is it, are you less likely to crowd out in PNG than than you are in in Greece or something like that? I mean, absolutely. When when we're talking about crowding out, absolutely no question. But I think it's it's also different challenges, right? Different challenges. The nature in, in PNG it's not only about energy transition, but there are a lot of other competing, let's say, development challenges of focal areas. And on the other hand, I mean, we're talking about crowding out, but in a place like PNG, the question about bringing in private sector, bringing in private sector capital, making them feel comfortable, but also benefiting from or bringing in private sector uh, know-how. Uh, so I think there's a there's a bit of a different dynamic. Yeah, yeah. Okay, could I change change tack tack a bit, um, Harry, and talk about the non so EBRD? We've we've talked about it. I think we all agree there's a there's a big role to play uh, in the energy transition. Markets aren't perfect. Uh, you know, long term thinking is useful. All the all of those types of things. Can you can you say a bit about the complementary? like complementary aspects of energy and energy markets that help you do your job? Um, you know, what are the types of environments that enable private sector investment? Um, you know, the sort of thing that comes to mind is it seems to me like there's a lot of activity in, as we say, Greece, Romania, Bulgaria, relatively less in Hungary at the moment, which I assume is political. But what are the, what are the kind of key ingredients on that make your job of attracting private sector investment into a particular market easier? So I think it's a, it's a couple of things. I mean, number number one is prices. Um, if you if you get the prices right, it just everything flows from that. And the biggest example for me is the um, the EU carbon carbon allowance price. You know, the, to see what's happened in that in the last couple of years. I mean, you guys are all over it, but um, you know. It's just, it makes a discussion with a credit officer so much easier because you're basically, I mean, the way I put it, if you do a renewables project, you know, you're providing the commodity that everybody wants without the pollution that nobody wants. Um, so you, you've got a product that you know there is going to be demand for. Um, and you can point and say, look, you know, the competitor, if you take Poland, for example, you know, in crude numbers, let's say EU allowance is now 40 euros a ton. A, a megawatt hour of coal-fired power is around about a ton of carbon. You know, people can bid renewable price, renewable projects in auctions at forty euros, at forty euros a megawatt hour. So you know, instantly you 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 just know you're in the money. Coal could um, be free, and it would still not compete. Exactly. Uh, those yeah. Numbers, yeah. 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 And and it's really hard to get away from that very compelling logic. Um, but so um, 
so you know in the other markets are not you know outside the eu you still don't have a meaningful carbon price um but but again when you look at energy prices you know i've done quite a lot of work in in north africa and if you if you just look if you stripped away all the subsidies and the market distortions of which unfortunately there are still very many but if you looked at the pure economics the sorts of prices you can you can generate solar and wind for in morocco or egypt i mean they're just you know we, we're hopefully not very far away from signing a new project in egypt at under two and a half dollar cents per kilowatt hour um so if you have market structures which disclose proper prices you're in oh. that's the best signal by far um and then the other thing i think is a long-term direction of travel you know uh-huh. we often say to governments look it goes back to my point about not doing just a 50 megawatt project and and stopping there we said we often say to government said the most important thing you do is you, you you set the long-term direction you know say even even saying we want to be net zero in 2050 is it, or 2060 is enormously powerful interesting because, you know it may not it may not mean much for now in terms of actual tangible policy outcomes but it gives the signal to everybody that this is the direction of travel and we really are now in the cycle where you know that is that is the next you know the next asset life falls into that it falls into that that space yeah. so i think you know We'll, we often encourage people to start with, you know, start with where do you want to go with renewable energy? You know, do you want to have this much percentage by 2030 or 2035? And then you can build back from there. But you, having that overall signal that this is where a government wants to do is, is enormously important. So it's those two key elements, you know, proper prices and a long and a long term uh, strategy. Uh, those are the key. Things. And and how would you so take Poland as an example, mm. right? How would you describe? So we know where the EU ETS price is. Yeah, car, carbon pricing is 40, 40 euros. Um, you presumably talk to utilities and other in you know, other investors in the Polish market. How how EU ETS aside, how would you carry? You know, has the tone of the conversation towards renewables and decarbonisation changed in the last five years? Um, and and you know is that you know is it about yeah, is it about you know twenty fifty targets EU ETS pricing is it just an awareness that the world is 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 moving on and then how how does that impact your ability to to invest? Oh, I mean in in Poland and, and increasingly now in the rest of the European Union countries where we operate, it's the tone has changed massively in five years. I mean it is night and day to be frank. Um, and what's driving that is a you know it's a combination of things. It's renewables getting really really cheap. Um, you know, even if you sh- even if you had no movement on the carbon pricing side, you're still at highly competitive p- um, power. Um, that's one thing. Second thing is um, that carbon has got expensive in the EU. Third is that you know you've got a body of EU legislation which embeds really challenging targets. I mean, you know, we're pretty soon we're going to go to 55% um, emissions reduction, maybe even 60% if the Parliament has its way. Um, you know, we're at 32% for renewables by 2030, um, could go up to 38% in, in, in the course of this year. So you've got a whole body of EU legislation. I often think of EU legislation as a ratchet. You know, it takes a very long time to sort of crank around to the next point on the cop, but it mm. never goes back. Yeah. Um, and that gives you a real sort of flaw. And then you've got mm. popular you know, you've got popular sentiment, you know, more and more people concerned about the environment, pushing that agenda. Um, And then you've got business. I mean, you know, companies, and and we see this outside the EU, you know, company after company saying, I'm not waiting for government. I want to go green, whether it's because of, you know, conviction that this is, you know, conviction held by the management, um, whether it's because I can't recruit good people and keep them if if I don't green, or whether it's because I'm worried that my my purchases. Yeah. So it's just, 
there's just a sort of perfect storm pushing that way. And it, yeah, it makes investment much easier. I mean, f three or four years ago, we were, not, we, did, we were doing nothing in Poland. You know, last year we did, you know, four or five projects, hopefully similar this year. Um, and I can feel the same, I mean, same momentum is absolutely there in Greece. And I can feel it coming in Bulgaria, Romania, the Balkans. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure the reason I ask also is I, I've never seen like, and you know, I work in a bunch of different countries, but the change of tone from like established players in Poland over the last three or four years, it was just like, it's like Aurora, what are you talking about? Renewables getting built four years ago, you know, get out of my office and stop wasting my time. And now it's just a complete conversion. And so, um, well, I mean, last year we invested in a, in a transition bond issued by Tauron, which is a coal heavy utility in Poland. State owned, coal said, heavy. Yeah. Yeah, if you had said two years ago, EBRD, <laughs> you will invest in a bond issued by Tauron in which they commit to reduce their, to close coal plants, reduce their emissions and build more renewables. Everyone just said, you know, laughed and said, yeah. but, but it's, it, and companies like that, which are very dynamic, very, you know, very ambitious, that they're, they're the ones as well. It's not just the new developers coming in. It's, it's the existing utilities who are really yeah. part of, of this transformation. And that's very exciting as well. And it, it, there's a, there's a point. And then Peter, I want to ask you about this European ratchet, but you know, part of it for me, at least is, you know, the politics is actually, decarbonisation isn't super expensive, or certainly at the moment it's not particularly expensive. You know, take your $40, $40 coal example. But in general, we just got to a point politically where I think, you know, Poland, other, you know, Visegrad countries are just of the view that, hang on, is this really the fight I want to be taking to Brussels or do I just do this and, and you know, fight, fight some other front? And it, it seems like, you know, there is, as, as, as much as we talk about the politics, actually there's a very fundamental kind of market-driven aspect here that it just... It just it becomes pointless to oppose decarbonisation given what the cost is, particularly in low renewables penetration systems. Um, Peter, can I maybe take? I don't know if you want to take the count the counterpoint to the kind of ratchet thing, but I mean we have had waves in Europe of reversals, right? So we've had booms and busts, you know, subsidies in Romania, subsidies in Croatia that you know everyone gets excited and then everyone goes away again. Do you do you agree with Harry? You know, this time it's different. This is um this is a an inexorable movement towards higher higher targets and more decarbonisation. And what's different it's, if it is? That's a good question, John. I'm curious if uh, if Harry would agree. But I see what happened in the in the early 2010s in, in Romania, Bulgaria, and actually across some other EU countries, where you had this kind of let's try out renewable subsidies, and then maybe we're paying them way too much and uh, they're quite expensive and let's stop this experiment. Whereas now we're at a time where in a country like Romania, Bulgaria, you don't have an active renewable subsidy scheme. So let's say the investment in renewables is much more driven by retiring capacity. So the post-socialist post uh, countries that have still quite aging, uh, especially thermal fleets, they're retiring. So there's need for new capacities. And then purely based on the economics, you see that renewables are very, very competitive. This gives you uh, certainty that this time it is different because there's no one sitting behind it and saying yes or no to it, but it's the market that's chosen. Yeah, yeah, I suppose it's a similar point. It's the, the economics are very yeah. different now than they were were a decade ago in terms of uh, the, the cost. Can, Peter, can you say a little bit about? So you've done a lot of work with you know with Aurora in all sorts of Eastern European countries. Um, uh, as as well um georgia i think you know going going even further further than romania um bulgaria greece 
does our role, does Aurora's role change, do you think, between sort of advising someone on investments in Germany and advising them on investments in, in Greece or something like that? Yes, I would say yes. Most uh, an important part is that policy is perceived as much less reliable, much more volatile, and that might or might not be true. But uh, and that, and thus market risks or the, the understanding the market becomes much more important. And on the other hand, what we see is that more investors go into these markets because they say, "I'm." It's not exciting to invest in in, in, in German in German renewables under the subsidy scheme or in France. Everyone can do that. But I'm, I, I want to understand and I want to have higher yields and also accept higher risks. So there's, um, uh, I think there's a much bigger need to, to understand the dynamics. There's one thing, uh, as an example, we've been working on Romania. There's a big discussion in Romania about adding nuclear. And so far, it seems unlikely that new nuclear plants, Chernobyl 3 and 4, are being built. And, and, and so as an investor, you can see this is, a big, this is a big challenge or this is a big risk to my wind investment. If you play it with our, let's say, let's say, if we simulate it, if you model it with our model, we see that actually for wind investment, even with additional 1.5 gigawatts of nuclear in the system, prices are not affected that much. So it's a one, two years per megawatt in revenues in, uh, in capture prices. So understanding that makes you much more comfortable that you don't have to uh, fear the decision of, of nuclear being introduced or not. And then I think on the other hand, it's also the way we work um, in these countries is we're in exchange with, with local players as well as international investors. And so there's also comfort of understanding the, the developments that are not always transparent for someone sitting in London or in Frankfurt. Yeah, it's an interesting point. The, the um, you know, what, let's just say, were I investing in, I don't know, Vietnam or something like that, or a PNG, would I rather have a great power model or have like the former minister as one of my advisors? I, I think I would much rather, you know, the, the relative, the, the way I think about it is in some markets that are like transparent, lots of data, you want a good power model. In, in ones that aren't, you want like someone with inside information or some sort of, you know, some sort of legitimate information. Uh, and it sort of, it's interesting. So, so you know, Vietnam, I would want that guy rather than the power model necessarily. Yeah, that, that's, not a, that's not a business strategy Peter's going to condone. I no, no, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying you should. I'm saying where I can I, also tell you that that strategy has vulnerabilities as well. <laughs> yeah, but, but it is interesting, though, that actually, because of the energy transition and because it's a physical system, actually, there's a lot of the modeling that still matters. You know, I had Tom Glover on from RWE recently, and he says, Look, even in markets where there is no congestion charging, we need to know we're building in the right part of the grid or the wrong part of the grid. And even though, and, and though Germany's the same, right? You, you tend, you know, even, even if you're building in Germany and you know you're not going to get penalized today for congestion, you can't argue with physics. And five years' time, 10 years' time, if there's too much wind being produced at your node of the grid, you're going to be in trouble. And I suspect, as you say, it's the same for nuclear, it's the same for other things. You, know, you cannot. You know, you're never going to get an, an ex-government advisor who knows what policy will look like in ten years. Certainly, the Polish guy from five years ago didn't know that. And so, oh, I, I mean, I, I yeah. agree with that completely. I mean, we did a we did a massive solar project in Egypt a few years ago. Um, you know, which you know, 1.5 gigawatts on one site, which really was the sort of the start of private renewables in Egypt. And you know, Egypt's a fully regulated um, electricity sector. Um, you know, it's very very strong state involvement, state state control, but. 
you know, even so, we built, um, you know, we didn't do what you what you can do because we're not nearly as sophisticated, but we nonetheless built a sort of crude dispatch model of the Egyptian of the Egyptian power sector. And we we looked and tried and calculated, you know, what is it? We, we built a merit order for the Egyptian power sector in order to understand where the renewable projects would sit in it. And every project we do, we look at the, the dispatch risk and the curtailment risk because you're right. You know, you can't argue with physics. You also from at the end in the in the long run, you cannot argue with economics. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and these projects are all long-lived assets. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting, and re re obviously reassuring for the for the CEO of a mod modeling company as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> although when we went into the US, you know, we thought Texas m much better than California because again, it's sort of investment by government decree uh, in in some ways. So it's not you know it's not it's not a perfect system, but um, well, but Texas is perfect if you own a if you own a functioning winterized peaking capacity <laughs> right now. <laughs> You can retire for life off a few hours production. Exactly. And I, anyway, there's, there's a separate point, but I, I, yeah, I, you know, I think Aurora had been saying for a while now that um, peaking capacity, although we never thought it happened in winter, you know, it was, that was sort of un, unheard of, but um, anyway, that's a topic for a separate, separate podcast. Yeah. It's a good segue e Egypt, Harry, because I wanted to ask you a bit about Northern Africa where I know you mm. focus quite a lot. Uh, and I'm sure there's, you know, uh, a lot of heterogeneity across different countries and their and their sectors. But could you just describe a, a little bit for a power market expert? What is it? What are the Northern African power markets like? You know, are we, are we talking? Are we talking about are their price? You know, their prices? How how what how how do you think about invest investment there? Is it all state owned? Yeah. What are the characteristics? Well, they, you're right. They're heterogeneous. Um, I mean, we, but we so we work in uh, Morocco, Tunisia, and Egypt. Um, I'd say Morocco is is probably at a different stage of development. There is there is a fair amount of private participation, and there's a degree of market liberalisation for the, some of the larger consumers. Um, but it's it's still large. I mean, there's a lot of state ownership and a lot of state state intervention and, and and a lot of price regulation. When you come to Tunisia and Egypt, it's essentially you know state owned, state controlled, um, fully regulated tariffs. Um, so you know both countries have plans for market liberalisation, but you know it's challenging. It takes a long time, and I think in a way renewables actually creates a, more of a problem um, for market liberalisation because you know you know, these familiar issues that you've got zero marginal cost production coming onto the system actually sort of makes a bit of a mess of a, of a market liberalization. So, um, you know, they're, but they're a long way from being sort of markets in any form that you would recognize. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And is, so are there parallels to the early days of the EBRD? You know, is this like investing oh, in, in massively, massively? Okay. You know, I'm, you know, the, the large degree of state involvement, um, you know, actually also one fundamental feature is a sense of utilities as a sort of basic social right rather than a commodity that you know should be priced and and, and metered and so on and you know but all these countries i'd say especially in the last couple of years egypt um, have made real strides towards you know addressing those sorts of issues and making a transition but you know these are these are big, big utilities and it takes it takes a while so yeah a lot of times it does it really feels like our transition model you know, resonates there. Even you know, even if that transition model was designed essentially with the USSR in mind, it actually proves to be quite useful and quite quite applicable in in those in those um, countries. Yeah, no, and it, I mean, privatization is not a. In fact, I'm not even sure there's a trajectory towards privatization in power markets in general. You know, there's a lot of a lot of the U.S. markets are still you know vertically integrated. You know, state state owned. Um, you know, I, I, at least as I see it, I think, I mean, I, not in my own mind, I, I, I see all the virtues of privatization and prices, but the, um, 
I think the jury is still out in 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 many markets. I wouldn't yeah, bet on any of them being, you know, substantially privatized in Northern Africa, for example, ten years from now. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Ten years feels like a long way to predict anything these days. But but I mean, yeah, it, it's not something that's on the cards in in the foreseeable future. And I think if you're going to privatize, you, you need to have, you need to have got to a certain point first. Um, premature privatization is clearly a mistake. Um, and, mm-hmm. and you know, and frankly, that you know, the post-Soviet era is littered with examples of that. Um, I do. I mean, I think what we've seen is so there's privatization, then there's private participation. I mean, clearly, private participation, especially in renewables, is almost a no-brainer. You know, yeah. that's what drives these incredible prices. Um, and then I, I think what we've seen is distribution privatization. That that does tend to work. If you've got once you've got the right regulatory framework and once you've got a handle on the asset base, mm-hmm. then then I think distribution privatization as a as a driver for investment and a driver for efficiency is is a definite win. You mean by distribution, you mean the lower voltage network? Yeah, yeah lower medium voltage. It's a customer facing business, if you like. Yeah. Okay. It, 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 interesting. Um, do you think just one thing on that? And Peter, maybe you have a view on this. Um, it seems to me, at least, one of the drivers of liberalisation of power markets has been, you know, like Brussels and greater integration, right? And a, a sort of single market for power means that, you know, people are adopting similar types of market structures, whether you're in Ireland or, you, you know, Poland, capacity mechanisms, those sorts of things. Um, could you see, Peter, that being a driver of reform you know, further south in Northern Africa, you know, integrate more integration with the European grid. So, so interestingly, we've, we've done some work with the Moroccan government in the past year. It's interesting, I mean, on the role of coal in the system, um, which is still fairly prominent, mm-hmm. considering how great the renewable resources are. And one of the big points there is that security supply is a big concern. That has to do with the politics with the neighbors, etc. But there's also no integration. And, and, and uh, let's say the link to Europe is relatively weak. Uh, I mean, there's a whole discussion about selling electricity without a carbon price into a market where people have to pay carbon prices. So Spain stopped that to some extent. Mm. So markets could be something that helped the integration. Yes, with Europe, but also, I mean, in the Moroccan example, probably relatively difficult, but uh, a greater integration uh, with its neighbors as well. When you're thinking about security of supply and, and balancing, I mean, if you look at Europe, Germany couldn't have run its its energy transition without uh, relying on the neighbors. Uh, so yeah, that shows you that clearly. Yeah, Morocco has a few hundred megawatt AC link to um mm. to to Spain. I think. Yeah. Are you? I hope you, uh, Harry. Are you looking at Morocco and hydrogen, green hydrogen, and these types of things? Is that a? I mean, presumably that could that could drive the drive the linkage. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's probably more realistic. You know, the energy integration will come more around. Well, put another way, the energy integration will come more around monetizing the incredible renewables potential. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when you look at the numbers, I mean, I've been to this this huge um, solar project we, we were closely involved in, Benban in, in Egypt, and, and you look at it on the map, and this is a one and a half gigawatt site, you go there on the ground, and it's just, as far as the eye can see, it is empty, sunny desert. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, the, and you get the prices that you would expect when you've got such a great resource. Um, yeah. And then, of course, you turn to the question of how do you monetize that? And, you know, do you monetize it by somehow shipping cheap, clean electricity to Europe? Or do you monetize it by turning into green hydrogen? You know, that's not clear. And the governments are starting to grapple with that. And Morocco certainly, you know, has a clear, you know, clear agenda to, to, to really try to do something with, um, with hydrogen. What is that exactly? You know, is it, 
you know, strengthening the links and sending the electricity? Is it exporting the hydrogen? You know, Morocco's one of the world's largest phosphate producers. So maybe it's, you know, maybe it's more about producing green fertilizer. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, that definitely, you know, Morocco is actively engaged in doing this and we're one of the partners trying to help them think yeah. through, you know, what, what the opportunities are, what, what the challenges are. Um, but it, to be fair, it's still fairly early stage. Mm -hmm. I've got one more question, and it touches on something you, you said before about the difficulty in forecasting the future. Um, but I'm going to ask you to forecast the future anyway. Um, if, let's just fast forward. Uh, you know, the, I didn't touch on it. But, you know, history of the EBRD was fall of the Iron Curtain and, and European development and those types of things. Um, Ten years from now, what do you think will be the biggest difference between the EBRD, you know, of 2030 and the EBRD of 20? 20 where, where do you think it's going and peter i'll ask you the same thing i'll just give harry a minute to think about that and then i'll ask you the, the same thing peter so you've got a minute to think thanks well. for the extra yeah yeah you're welcome i uh that is a good question and i, I have no clue i mean bear in mind i joined the bank in 2005 when 30 percent of our business volume was in russia egypt mm -hmm. was a shareholder but not a country of operation um and now you know we we you know we're focused on Egypt, on Turkey. Um, so it's, you know, my prediction is almost guaranteed to be wrong. If I had to predict one thing, it's that we won't be talking about a green department or I, I don't think my job will exist because I don't think there will be a sort of separate green economy and climate action. Yeah. I think, and this is an optimistic prediction, that those concerns will have become so part of, you know, every, every investment decision. That it won't make sense any more than we you know we don't have a specific department that sort of looks for sound you know we have a credit department but that's for every transaction um it will be ingrained in everybody's mentality and we won't be talking about you know it's 50 percent of our business green or 60 percent or 20 percent or whatever it'll just be taken for granted so i think you know it will be not be possible to invest unless something is green and sustainable mm -hmm. um peter all right. Um, yeah. It better be good. Forecasts are always wrong, right? So in that sense, um, I mean, we, 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 as Harry says, we're not running out of challenges. So I think, that, and, yeah. and, and and I mean, being a, being a believer that uh, I mean, the public lending and, and kind of this collaboration with the private sector makes sense. I think there's plenty to, to do. Industry decarbonization, net zero, all these challenges. Mm -hmm. That maybe now we're we're talking about in, uh, in in Western Europe already. They will also make its way to to other geographies. There's also something probably around standard setting. I mean, a lot of capital wants to go into, let's say, broadly the ESG sp space. Yeah. What does that mean? What's the real impact of yeah. the ESG investment? And I think that a bank like EBRD can 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 play a role as well in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And yeah. That I totally agree. And I, you know, even 20 net zero 2050, I mean, it feels like we're going to have to have a foot on the accelerator for at least two, maybe three decades from now. Um, I feel, you know, yeah, in, no, in I mean, industry, it's, it's actually quite funny. I mean, I pulled up a graph recently looking at, you know, energy consumption by sources. And it's quite shocking when you see how small renewables is. Yeah. You know, you, you, we talk about it all the time. It's such an exciting story, but actually it's still pretty small that's it was quite frightening i mean i was like oh my god yeah 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 exactly and the, and the economics of investment in the first 20 percent is different to the economics of investment yeah. in the middle 50 percent, and is different from the last yeah 10 but, but, well. but okay but then the saving grace is always the economics of investing in pv were terrible yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 so you don't know economics can change yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I hear the clock chiming in the background, Harry, which I think is telling us it's it's just about time to wrap up. But before we do that, 
Uh, I wanted to ask you about a few questions in the energy transition and whether you think they're over or underrated. Uh, so I've got, I've got four of them. Let me start with the first one. Policy risk as a driver of private sector investment or lending decisions. You know, you often hear the private sector say, oh, we just need policy certainty. Uh, and, and sometimes politicians say, well, you know, the world is changing and, and, and we need to adapt to that. So do you think policy uncertainty uh, as a concept for, for um, investment deployment is overrated or underrated? Um, it's underrated when the technologies are cutting edge on economic it's because you need it. Once you have the economics in place, as we were discussing earlier, policy is much less important. Mm -hmm. Peter? Um, I'd say underrated. Okay, good, good. Uh, two, the role of markets in deeply decarbonizing the energy system. So I'm talking sort of 90% net or net zero. Uh, Harry, overrated or underrated? Um properly understood accurately rated right now okay okay peter <laughs> I, i'd say underrated i'm a firm believer in the in, in carbon prices okay good good uh three the role of gas as a transition fuel harry or oh, too political uh, okay very sensitive country by country answer okay good very diplomatic peter can you what, what's the gas usage like in papua new guinea can you be less diplomatic here <laughs> I, I'd say generally overrated, but uh, in, in Papua New Guinea, um, I think the goal is net zero in the power sector in 2030. And fortunately, that seems to be much more achievable than in industrialized economies. Okay, interesting. Uh, and then finally, Harry, the impact of ESG investing on the viability of fossil fuel projects. Is this drive towards ESG really impacting the, the, the economics of fossil fuel projects? Uh, no, not yet. Okay. Okay, so underrated. Uh, Peter? Basically, not yet. Not yet. Uh, yeah. Not yet a big factor. Great. Okay, well, excellent. I think that's a natural time to finish. Um, so, Harry, Peter, thanks so much for sharing your expertise. Pleasure. Uh, and uh, it was a pleasure to speak. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you, John. That was John Federson, co-founder and chief executive of Aurora, talking to Harry Boyd Carpenter, director, head of energy EMEA at the European Bank of Reconstruction and Development, and Peter Baum, project leader in Aurora's Berlin office, focusing on activities in Eastern and Southeastern Europe. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.